So Marvel's Endgame. Kind of on a Marvel deal right now. So Marvel's Endgame. So Iron Man and Doctor Strange and Spider-Man. They're on search for Thanos. You know, that evil Thanos. And so they meet up with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Remember that scene? And so the two groups have never met, strangely enough, but it is a big universe, and they didn't even know the other existed, it seems. And so each, as they meet, suspects the other is in league with Thanos rather than fighting against him. And so it's this really tense moment, and there's a standoff. They draw weapons. They start threatening each other. And then Doctor Strange, trying to figure things out, looks at Quill, you know, one of the Guardians, and says, um, all right, what master do you serve? And Quill just retorts, what master do I serve? What am I supposed to say, Jesus? And it's this belittling, dismissive, you know, almost indignant comment. At least that's how I view it. And it's almost like, well, I'm a, I'm a superhero. I fly around the universe. What's the big deal about him? Well, so the vast majority of people in America, they believe Jesus was a real person. Barna, several years ago, did a study. 92% believe Jesus existed, a real person. I mean, that's an incredible percentage. And however, we would think if so many believe Jesus existed, that things would be a lot different, you know, in our country. But the question is, what kind of person is Jesus? And, and what did he come to do? And there's all kinds of varied opinions. I mean, all kinds of opinions that come out of our music and our movies and even the scholarly world. And so, you know, just a few that I was thinking about this week, you know, you have the view of Jesus as the example of faith, right? And that's probably the most common. He, he shows us what faith in God looks like. Or you have the great moral teacher. You know, he's the one that teaches the Ten Commandments. Or others, he's the revealer of knowledge. Like, he unlocks the secrets of the universe. Or others, he's a spiritual leader, one among many who leads us up the mountain to God. Others, the political revolutionary or social activist. He, he opposes injustice and oppression. Others, he's the best friend, the counselor. He sticks with you. He cares for you. He, he comforts you. You know he's with you. Others, he's the wonder worker. Like, he provides what you need. A host of things and more. And, of course, there's truth to all of this. But on their own, by themselves, they are false because they fall far short of who he essentially is. On their own, they can be an effort to lower Jesus or limit Jesus. As Lewis said this morning, box him in, fit him in. I mean, Jesus is the God-man, right? He's the redeemer of sinners. And it's only as he is that that he can also be those other things, so again, our section that we've been looking at is 7-1 to 8-3. And in this section, Jesus' identity is questioned. 
And the portion we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, the sharpest point of that, and based on his identity, the kind of faith we're to have in him is considered. Like, what kind of faith should you have in Jesus? And so it comes to the head in this portion that I thought we we're going to do in one week we've done, now with today, it'll be three weeks. And so, so I a, as I mentioned in Luke 7, beginning at verse 18, the, the, the section is structured around three questions, and they're three penetrating questions. Worthwhile for your consideration uh, today. So the first question is John the Baptist's. If you remember, and John the Baptist in prison, he's discouraged. Sends those messengers and says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And that's the question of questions. That's, that's the most important for you. Your whole life hinges on that question. And, and really, if you, if you step back from that, our world knows we need a Savior, and we're looking for a Savior. This is a question our world asks in a host of different ways. Well, the next question is Jesus now defending his cousin, forerunner, herald, friend, John. And he asks it three times, and he's talking about John, but as he talks about John, he's really talking about himself, because John's preparing for Jesus. And so he goes, who did you go into the wilderness to see? Like, why did you make all that effort? Why'd you close up your little business and pack up your food and head out in the wilderness? Did you go three times? Remember, did you go because you wanted to hear someone tell you what you wanted to hear? Did, a shaken by the weight, read, did you go to see people in expensive clothing? Did you go to get entertained? You know, did you go to get distracted? I mean, those are two ways we go looking for help, isn't it? Or did you know you had a big problem? You know you needed help. You made all that effort to go out to find God's prophet. You needed a word from God. That's a question for us. And so today we look at the third question. And uh, this question really turns the screws on us this morning. So Luke 7, let's start reading at verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children. They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Amen. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. So what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? 
So Jesus is evaluating, assessing his generation. He's looking at those around him at that moment, and he's telling them how he views them. He's also generalizing that to all his contemporaries in Israel. The current response of Israel to John and Jesus. And by doubling the question, he just drives it home. He's he's inviting them, urging them to examine themselves. How would you compare yourselves? Like, what do you like? What do you think you're like? And scripture talks like that. You can think of Old Testament passages where God talks of a generation and it's oftentimes not in a good light. It's a timeless principle. Acts 2.40 at Pentecost, Peter is preaching that sermon and he goes, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. It's a timeless principle. Or Philippians 2. 14 or 15, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may be children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. So we're also to evaluate ourselves and our generation. You and I are to do that. Our contemporaries, how do we respond to Jesus? Are we more shaped by our generation or are we more shaped by Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. And that's a wonderful table conversation. What do you think? How are we shaped today? By our generation or by Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures? Well, the context, the context of our question is verses 29 and 30. And we looked at that last week, but in 29 and 30... Y'all scan it. I want to go quickly through it, but it's Luke's summary of Israel's response to John and then through John to Jesus. And it it forms a little bookends because it speaks of being justified in the last verse of our section also speaks about wisdom being justified. So it's meant to go together. So in 29 and 30, you have what, what, opened the door for Jesus to give this little illustration in our passage. And Jesus says, the people and the tax collectors declared God just or justified God, meaning that when they publicly repented of their sins and received John's baptism, they were saying, in effect, God, you're right. You're right. You're right about who I am. You're right that I'm a sinner. You're right that I'm worse than I ever realized. You're right, I can't save myself. And your way of salvation is right. There's not another way. I confess and I turn from my sins and I ask your forgiveness. I mean, it's right. Like, that's a wonderful place to get in your life. And you say, God, you're right. I'm not pushing against you anymore. However, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Now, how did they reject the purpose of God for themselves. So they refused to be baptized by John. And by refusal or rejection of that baptism, this kind of standoffish attitude, like standing over John, um, they were saying, in effect, John, you don't speak right about me. I'm not like a dirty, rotten sinner like the rest of them. I'm better than them. I don't, you don't speak right about God that he saves by this boundless, unmerited favor. Of course he 
saves in some way on the basis of how I performed. So this other group, the Pharisees and lawyers principally, they, they don't think they're sinners and they don't really like grace. And so the comparison we're about to look at, Jesus is especially calling out the leaders. However, by this time, it, it seems, since Jesus talks about a generation, that a lot of the people that initially responded well to John, initially responded well to Jesus, they've now been influenced. They've been influenced and in starting to change their minds such that maybe a majority of them around Jesus, some commentators say, have now shifted their mindset. They're critical. And so it just shows us the power of a generation to shape that we have to be wary about. And we're seeing it played out here. So the comparison, the comparison. Well, Jesus gives us really sharp rebuke. And he says, to what then shall I compare, literally, the men? <laughs> I mean, it's used in the general sense of people, but it's literally the men of this generation and what are they like. And so one commentator says, the problem is serious. I mean, the men act no better than children. Now, later Jesus is going to say that you've got to become like children to enter the kingdom of God. Like, there's a way in which we need to become like Haven this morning to enter the kingdom of God. What, what is that sense? We need to be childlike, dependent, resting, trust in the parents that you know just love you. That's what faith looks like. But here it's distinct. And so another commentator says, this is, there's a difference between being childlike and childish. Jesus calls his generation childish. What do you think about ours? Can we say that about ours? So then he explains what he means through a little rhyme that kids would say back then when they'd get annoyed or crossways with their playmates, maybe because they wanted to play one game and their friends didn't want to play the same game. And so just a big mess. And this little rhyme was, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So it's a rhyme that kids, about kids being unpleasable or dissatisfied or or peevish, or irritable, or spoiled, when you just can't make them happy. And some call the rhyme the parable of the brats. <laughs> um, like, you don't like anything. There's those days when you just don't like anything. You're disgruntled, or hard-headed, or uncooperative. I mean, eight children, like, are you ever like that, ever? Like, you have those days. Uh, youth, are you ever like that? Adults, are you ever like that? So one of our children, we have a little movie of this child laying on the floor saying, I'm bored. We go, why are you bored? I'm just bored. Well, let's play this. No, I'm bored. It's just nothing to do. You can't do anything. You want to play this? I don't want to play that. You want to eat this? I don't want to eat that. Or it reminds me of football games in my front yard growing up. Sometimes everybody would just get angry at each other. We'd fight and bicker and people would go home just in a heat. That's the picture you have here. And so Jesus uses this rhyme as a parable to illustrate his generation. He, he pictures a bunch of children gathered in a wide open space of the marketplace. When they, when they weren't selling things, there was a big space they could gather in. And so one group is trying to get another group to play the game they want to play. And so it's first a happy game and then a sad game. Specifically, this one group is trying to get the other group to play weddings and then to play funerals. 
And see, they're imitating their parents. And, you know, children, you know how you, you have your little kitchens in your house or your little lawnmowers and you imitate your parents. And they're, they're doing the same thing here. Well, weddings and funerals made this huge impression on the children. You can imagine, they were the major social events of that time, the most elaborate and emotive. So weddings uh, were the happiest, and funerals, of course, the saddest. And they're these public spectacles, so wedding ceremonies lasted about a week. And the bride and groom dressed like a queen and king, even if they could, with a golden crown. And they were treated like a queen and a king. That's really something. And so there was a procession and then a week of feasting, music, songs, dancing, speeches. I mean, it was a full-on joyful party for a week. Funerals also entailed an elaborate ceremony, but it was one of of deep, like, demonstrative grief and mourning. You, 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 You hired professional mourners to weep and wail to express your grief. Uh, The dead person was clothed in special clothes. He was put on a plank like the widow of Nain's son. And you buried somebody outside the town. So as the the buyer was, was passing your house, it was expected that you and your family would join the procession. Like it was a community event. And you'd go out and you'd stop periodically and they'd give a speech, you know, about God's grace and about the person deeply stirring. So one group was trying to get the other group to play their game, either the happy one and then not the sad one. The other one won't cooperate. Okay. So Jesus explains the parable. And in this parable, he pictures the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the lawyers of verse 30. If you go up to verse 30, the Pharisees and lawyers who rejected the purpose of God. He pictures the Pharisees and the lawyers and now all those who are also adopting their mindset, this critical dissatisfied attitude towards John and Jesus. He pictures them as a group of children trying to get the others to play their game. And the others they're calling out to are John and Jesus. And neither John or Jesus is doing what they want them to do. They want John and Jesus to play their game, to play by their rules, but John and Jesus won't be controlled or cooperate with them. And so Jesus says in verse 32, Jesus says, John the Baptist has come come to you grieving, mourning over the nation's sins, preaching God's wrath and judgment, fire and brimstone. He's called you a brood of vipers. He said the axe is at the root of the trees. He came preaching the gravity of sin, the need of repentance, to hold a funeral for your sin and to find forgiveness in Christ. He symbolized it as a living parable by a life like outside the ordinary social life. He, he didn't eat with people. It was permanent fasting. He was on his own. He was, he was apart from the people, abstaining from wine and bread, not engaging in the joy of meals around the table, devoting himself to prayer and fasting. That's what he did. And Jesus says, you didn't like his style. You got tired of his gloom and doom emphasis. You thought he was too much, too strange, too radical. You ended up dismissing him as out of his mind, crazy, deranged, which being associated with demon possession, you looked at him and said, does he have a demon? You're like those kids. You're like those kids. And you're looking at John and saying, John, quit with the morning. Like we're playing the flute here. We want the flute. 
and we want to sing happy songs and we want to dance. Join in, lighten up, have a good time, play this game, stop harping on sin and judgment. It can't be that bad. We want to enjoy life. Come on. We don't like what you're bringing. We want you to be like this. Well, then Jesus says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunken and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, what a beautiful description of Jesus. Essentially, he's saying, I've come with a different style, a different emphasis. I came within ordinary social life. I entered life among you. I enjoyed meals and parties with you. I've enjoyed table fellowship with suspect people. <laughs> Folks, you look down on the ones you think are too far gone, and I symbolize this as a living parable before you of the excessive profligate grace of God to the worst of sinners. It's more abundant than your sin. So I'm spreading a table to invite you in. In fact, I've come for a great and glorious wedding party. Yet all this was too much for you. You called me a glutton and a drunkard. You scorned me as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You're like those kids calling out to the others in the marketplace. Jesus quit with all the feasting and festivities. Stop all the dancing. Quit having such a good time. We're singing a dirge now. That's the game we're playing. We want you to mourn a little bit, get serious, start calling folks out for their sins, talk about God's law, God's judgment, and a reformation of life. Come on, get with the program. We don't like what you're bringing. Do something else. And they won't be happy. And Jesus says, John and I are on the same team. Like, we both preach the good news. John came with the sad tune stressing repentance, but you wanted the happy tune. I came with the happy tune stressing lavish, exuberant grace, but you rejected me wanting the sad tune. You can't be happy. John MacArthur says it well. Their issue isn't really style, it's substance. They critique the style to really critique the substance. At root, they don't like the gospel. They don't want to think they're such helpless, desperate sinners and they don't want to think they're in need of such a grace that's unearned and undeserved and overflowing apart from our performance. They just don't want it. They want something else. And we look at John. John's role is unique. He was the alarm clock to Israel. Wake up from your slumber. Repent and believe. But we always need both emphases. I mean, the quote that I like so much, if you've gone through a new members class with me, it's John Stotts, no man ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed himself to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. You've got to know your your need before you ever love Jesus. When you look at those James Webb Space Telescope pictures, and you see those galaxies, brilliant, (laughs) They're brilliant against the night sky. And the gospel's brilliant against the darkness of our sin. And yet, Jesus also preached conviction of sin. He's doing it right here. And however, Luke makes it clear that Jesus stresses the extravagant grace of the gospel. The reason for that is that he is the God-man come to take judgment for you. He, He came to suffer eternal death 
for you to give you eternal life. That John Owen quote, this then is what we are peculiarly to eye in the Lord Jesus Christ, to receive it from him, even grace, gospel grace, revealed in and exhibited in the gospel. We especially see that in Christ. And so Luke 19 gives a summary statement of the purpose of Jesus' ministry when it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's what Jesus came to accomplish. But Luke 7.34 gives us how Jesus came to accomplish it. It says the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first is his purpose. The second is method. He came to seek and save the lost, but how does he do it? He eats and drinks. So why this eating and drinking? Why is that Jesus' method? Well, God's grace and Jesus aims to like bestow these amazing intimacy of relationship, acceptance, welcome, as it would be around a table at the best of meals with the closest of people. The gospel is the good news of the true, true groom who's come all the way down to our sinful reality to, to go after his wayward, wandering bride, to take responsibility for her sins, to lay down his life in her place, to make her his cherished, beloved bride, to enter into a marriage feast for her. That's why scripture begins and ends with a wedding. That's why he comes eating and drinking. That's why Jesus comes this way. That's why he says to you today, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. He wants the closest of relationship with you. He wants communion and fellowship with you. That's how. That's how he went about his ministry because he's picturing grace to us. What the gospel achieves for us. So who would want to stand back and critique him for that? Who would want to be an unpleasable, irritable, spoiled child with respect to that? Like he's coming all the way to do that. Who would want to be indignant towards him? Who would want to lower or limit his ministry? Why wouldn't we want to say, you're right about me and my need, but like you're coming after me right in my need to confer forgiveness and righteousness that you accomplish on my behalf. And so the climax is verse 35, real quickly. You see, the stubborn, hard-headed children, those who dictate to Jesus or demand he play by their rules, they aren't the last word, thankfully. Jesus culminates the parable this way, wisdom is justified by her children. So what he's saying, just real quickly, is that God's wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, it's foolishness to the world. It makes no sense to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. The gospel will be justified and declared right by those who receive it. Those who receive it like little children, dependent, resting, trusting in Jesus, who become children who play Jesus' way, who say to Jesus, I am that needy, and your grace is that abundant. And I want to enter into your feast and your festival. And so the question for us at the end of this is, are we one of those children of wisdom? Are we justifying God by having received such a gospel today? Is this, is this Jesus our master? Or even better, is this Jesus our, our redeemer? 
He's the one that's come after you to give you that grace. May it be the case. Amen. Let's stand.